Welcome to Hacking the Self. I'm Adrian Baker. Today on the show is a very special guest, and I feel like I've been saying that a couple of times recently, and I don't want to make the phrase redundant or use it so often that it becomes meaningless, but there's, you know, something has been happening of late where it's been a stream, excuse me, a string of guests that I've been really wanting to have on the show for some time. So I feel very fortunate to introduce another one of those guests to you today. It's She's particularly special because she's someone that I feel very blessed and honored to call my teacher, specifically my meditation teacher, and her name is Sally Kempton. I am going to resist giving you much of her bio because Sally really lays it out for us towards the beginning of the conversation and fair amount of depth. So you'll, you'll get a really strong sense of her background. But just a brief overview, Sally spent many decades as a swami or nun in a tantric form of Hinduism. And she received intensive training beginning in 1974 to 1972 studying with her primary teacher, Swami Muktananda, which some of you who are familiar with the spiritual scene coming over from India to the US in the 1960s and 70s will likely be familiar with that name. He was definitely one of those famous gurus. And Swami Muktananda was, he taught different forms of Indian philosophy and religion, but he he definitely was a, a tantric teacher. And I think Sally, no question, Sally would identify really that as her main lineage is a tantric form of Hinduism, what's often called Kashmir Shaivism. But Sally also received intensive training in Vedanta and yogic traditions as well. And she is someone who really has a very strong grasp of the various different streams of Indian religious and philosophical thought, including, I would add, Buddhism as well. And and she really has a, a knack for her ability to make connections across different religious traditions, as well as different philosophical systems in modern psychology. But I just wanted to give that overview because I know Sally being as modest as she is, isn't going to toot her own horn like that. But I certainly wanted to add that flavor is that she really is someone who has, that's not only her orientation in Kashmir Shaivism or tantric forms of Hinduism, but she really has a strong grasp of many different religious traditions, especially within India. And she's an incredibly skillful teacher. She not only can lecture, you know, with great erudition and authority on many of these different texts. But I think the most important thing for me with Sally, what really comes across, because there are a lot of great scholars out there, for sure. But what is very clear when one works with Sally is that she really is speaking from the experience of someone who is a very, very experienced and very, very skillful practitioner. And so when she references a text or when she references 
an idea, or when she gives you an instruction during a meditation, she's not just saying it because she gets it intellectually. She's someone who really has a deeply felt, lived experience of these ideas. And she really dedicated her life to these practices many decades as a, as a Swami, and then also outside of the monastic order, just as sort of a full-time meditation teacher, since she left what many people also might be familiar with, Siddha Yoga, which was the organization with which Swami Muktananda was affiliated and outlived him. She left that in 2002, and she's continued to teach meditation full-time since then, largely to the yoga community. So, Sally will go in more depth there. I just really wanted to sing some of her praises in a way that I know she would she would be far too modest to do herself. And I also will say I would strongly encourage anyone who enjoys my conversation with Sally to check out her website, sallykempton.com, where there are some fabulous online courses that you can do with Sally. She also has upcoming retreats and workshops. And there's certainly no replacing an in-person event and experiencing what I would definitely call, whether you want to think of it as a transmission or simply, simply a profound experience because she's able to guide people so skillfully through meditation, you know, is amazing to study with her in person. But that said, if you're not able to make it in person to travel and study with her, I would highly recommend doing one of her online courses. They're very reasonably priced for what you get. And they're incredibly powerful. I can vouch for that myself as someone who has done several, and I'm doing another one now. And I say that as someone who is not receiving any sort of commission from Sally. I'm, I'm purely saying that out of my own experience and genuine endorsement of what those courses and what studying with Sally has done for me. So I'll say on that note, I'm, I'm doing a course with Sally right now on working with difficult emotions. And I'm choosing to do this work, as I've mentioned on the podcast before, because I am going to be teaching mindfulness, meditation, and yoga at an addiction center. And so working with that population, which I'm extremely enthusiastic about and really looking forward to it as someone who struggled with addiction and uh, someone who comes from a family where a lot of people struggle with addiction. You know, I really wanted to focus on a set of practices that would really address these concerns. And while my mindfulness meditation teacher training absolutely addressed part of this training as well, you know, I realized that a big part of my experience with meditation was, you know, not only the Buddhist path, which has been incredibly important to me, and I should say I have less experience with Tibetan forms of Buddhism, though I do have some, which would be the more tantric influence, but I was about to say, I've been studying with uh, Sally and another teacher as well in this tradition of Kashmir Shaivism, although that label can be problematic. That's often what it's called. And I thought, you know, I'd, I'd really like to see what this tradition or, or these set of traditions have to say about how to work with difficult emotions, because I found those meditations incredibly effective for my own meditation practice. And I'd, I'd like to take to experiment with those approaches and to see how those might also be helpful in addition, in addition to some of the Buddhist practices I've been learning. So for that reason, I chose to, with Sally's kind uh, 
permission and willingness to go along with this topic. I suggested that we focus this particular podcast on a tantric approach to working with difficult emotions. And part of the reason I'm doing that, not only for my own personal preference, but mindfulness is such a popular movement out there right now. And I, and I'm a huge advocate of mindfulness based practices and other forms of, of Buddhist approaches to meditation as well. I would also note, of course, that a lot of what mindfulness does tries to present a secular form of Buddhism, which can have its advantages and limitations. But I wanted to offer people a presentation of a, a different approach from someone who's very skilled. And so that's what you will be getting in this conversation with Sally Kempton. So with that said, let me just say a brief thank you to a recent supporter on Patreon, Damien Cook, who decided to support the podcast. And I just want to say, Damon, I really appreciate your support. It's supporters like you who are making this show possible. And I'm really happy to say that there's been, you know, a stream of people willing to support the podcast on Patreon recently. And it's incredibly inspiring and motivating, not just because of what it means in terms of the income and it's wonderful to help offset the production cost of the show, which I'm incredibly grateful for, but it's just nice to see an engagement from the audience. And I mentioned in a previous podcast recently that I'm sort of evaluating my, I should say, how do I put this, reflecting on my relationship with Patreon. I'm a huge advocate of the platform and will continue to use it. And I'm definitely going to offer specific perks to different supporters like bonus content and early access to episodes. I had experimented for a bit of time with releasing two thirds of the episode to the public and the last third to just the supporters on Patreon. And I'm putting a brief moratorium on that for a number of reasons I mentioned in one of my previous podcasts. I may go back to it, but I'm just kind of pausing there. You know, I, I, I'm recognizing that people are incentivized and I want to incentivize people properly to get them to support the show on Patreon. But at the same time, I really want this show to be an offering and a form of karma yoga. And so I have, I'm conflicted about the reality of incentives and restricting access to the full show. And so I've, I've paused that and I really welcome people's feedback from the audience I'll just say briefly before I share where you can send that feedback, I also recognize that it's not the most seamless transition when you're listening mid-show to then switch applications from your preferred podcasting platform to Patreon to continue the conversation. So it seems like a less user-friendly experience as well. So I share those motivations for those who are new to the conversation. And whether you're a continued listener or a first-time listener, I would love to hear your thoughts on that. If you are a have experience with listening to podcasts or just a gut reaction, I always welcome people's comments, what they're loving about the show, constructive criticism. So we'd love to hear from you at hackingtheself at gmail.com. Hacking the Self Facebook page, at Hacking the Self on Twitter. And I've started being more active a little bit on Instagram recently, and that's at Hacking the Self One. So, with that said, we'd love to hear from you. Appreciate your support. If you're enjoying the podcast, 
would love it if you'd consider supporting the show on Patreon for just $2 or more a month. That's 50 cents an episode. You'll get bonus content and early access to shows, and you can support the show at patreon.com slash hacking the self. Writing reviews on iTunes, Stitcher, Google, whatever you use is a huge help as well, as is just sharing the podcast on social media or telling friends and family about it. So thank you so much for listening. And oh, one one final note before I transition to Sally. We experienced a little bit of, I shouldn't say a little bit, we experienced considerable technical difficulty. Fortunately, it was fine hearing each other. And so it should be quite clear when you listen to the conversation. However, we got cut off a number of times and add this to the long list of reasons that I'm very glad that I outsourced the production of the show to a professional production company. And I'm sure that they'll do a much better job editing the show that I would. And we did try to go back and we tried to fill in gaps. But if the conversation seems a little bit disjointed at points, at a couple of points, that is the reason why we really did do our best. And in fact, Sally and I even made a, a time to meet and had another call the next day for about 40 minutes because we had to come back to the conversation. I think it still came off great because Sally's fantastic, but I just wanted to give you a little bit of a, a heads up on that. So anyways, enjoy the show and would love to hear back from you. Take care. Well, let me just start out by thanking you so much for making the time to speak with us and, and to come on the podcast as someone who, you know, has studied with you and I consider you, you know, one of my teachers. It's a real honor to have you on the podcast. Well, it's a pleasure to be here with you, Adrian. So I've read your brief bio in the introduction to the show. But since we're going to be talking in this podcast about, you know, a tantric take on how to deal with difficult emotions, I'd love to lay a little bit of groundwork just on, first of all, how you became interested in tantra or sort of how you stumbled on the spiritual path. And then if you could also then explain just basically kind of what tantra is for folks. Okay. Well, my story is long and convoluted, but I'm going to, let me see if I can boil it down. I had a big awakening in my 20s, and it was like many people of my generation, it was on acid. And I think you've heard that you've heard this story, but I'll tell it because it is kind of typical. So I was I just gotten divorced. I was living in New York. I was a journalist. I was I had just signed a contract for what seemed like a lot of money to write a novel, and I had met a new guy. So I was you know we were in the first throws the first flush of romance and we were sitting in my living room and we'd taken a hit of acid, which it was not the first time I'd ever taken a psychedelic, but it was the first time since I was 18. So listening to, I tell this story differently at different times, we're listening to a record by the Incredible String Band, which was an English sort of psychedelic folk group that very, very gifted, very quirky. And they had this song called, This Moment is Different Than Any Before It. This Moment is Different, It's Now which is, of course, the ultimate spiritual cliche, but also one of the deep, deepest truths of the universe, right? So I'm listening to this, and all of a sudden, I became aware that the entire universe is made of love. And it came as a complete download of the truth. It wasn't visual. It wasn't, you know, acidy. It was just utter knowing. And I turned to my boyfriend and said, oh my God, there's only love. And he gave me a quizzical look and said, haven't you ever taken acid before? <laughs> so... 
So, and it was a genuine watershed moment once I recovered from the, he doesn't love me paranoia that arose. But I, because I realized that even though the experience faded as the psychedelic faded, it was very clear to me that this was the truth. There was something about the way my mind worked and the way my belief system worked, the way my conditioning worked that prevented me from seeing that and that I should do something about that. And that was that was the moment I, I became interested in meditation. So this was early 70s, which meant that there was nothing like the spiritual opportunities that there that are around now that were even around you know, later in that decade. So I got involved in a Western spiritual group based on, essentially based on the Sufi integral analysis, the body, mind, spirit analysis of how you hack your life. Because I have to say, that was definitely where I was coming from. I was, you know, I wanted a better life. I wanted a better self. I wanted a better, you know, experience of being me. And that particular group, which was I've come to realize they're extremely intellectually skillful. There was the understanding that that spiritual life is about the body, it's about the mind, it's about the psychic structure, you know, it's about the subtle body, the subtle sense, and it's also about, you know, what we call the non-dual. So I actually got in the year and a half I was with that group a, a pretty good education in universal spirituality. Also took a lot of psychedelics because this was a group that was quite modern. I say that partially ironically. So, you know, you, so there was a lot of, um, there's a lot of psych psychedelics. There was a lot of, let's say, groundbreaking experiments in relationships. And it was, it was profound. And in the, you know, as well as clearly not the kind of rigorous journey that I was looking for. Sort of midway through this process, I had an encounter with a Tibetan teacher and had a, a sort of classic non-dual awakening of realizing that what I thought was the self was not really the self. And then during a major meditation download that was so intense that it scared me, the name of the man who subsequently would be my teacher surfaced in my mind. You know, he was kind of a well-known Indian spiritual teacher. He was coming to the States. And I had one of those mystical moments. Okay, this is about Kundalini, the, the primordial evolutionary energy that, that in my tradition in Tantra, we say must be awakened for real spiritual progress. I have had a Kundalini awakening. It's too much for my little you know, body brain to handle without being scared. And this teacher, Swami Muktananda, can help me make sense of it. So, and that, you know, proved to be the direction of the next 20, 30 years of my life because I, I met him. I was very profoundly impacted by him. I went to, I joined his tour as his press representative because I was a journalist and then became the editor of his books. And, uh, you know, basically went deeply into the traditional yogic ashramic path. And one of the things about that approach to yoga is that it's, it's very, very, it's very much about discipline. It's very much about, you know, getting up at three in the morning and doing a rigorous meditation schedule. And in his case, he liked chanting a lot. So there was a lot of chanting, a lot of seva of you know, work offered as service, and a lot of the sort of egoic rubbing that goes on in a community. So that's what I did for the next 20 years of my life. And the thing that was interesting about this particular path is that it was it was a traditional yogic ashram in which, for instance, men and women sat on separate sides of the hall. You did not have casual sort of dating relationships with anyone. Celibacy was very much a value. So it was in no way conformed to the ideas about 
tantra that, for instance, were being promulgated in, in Pune at Rajneesh's ashram, which was contemporaneous. And yet, Swami Muktananda, my teacher, was a profound enlightened tantrika in that he his enlightenment was uh, had shown him the vision that everything that exists is sacred, is made of God, is you know is made of light, is infinitely pliable, is you know intrinsically creative, and he lived that. So when you were around him, this this recognition of the physical universe, which was which was my first, you know, my first real entry into tantric understanding, this recognition that physical universe is made of energy and that that energy is sacred and that it's juicy, it's blissful, it pulsates, it's gorgeous, you know, that that there is this this sacred energy that's at, at the heart of every experience. And then if you can get in touch with it, then there's absolutely nothing in life that cannot be made to reveal God and blissfulness. So, you know, to put it in religious language, which which was his language, he was, you know, he was a non very non-orthodox, but traditionally religious guy who called God Shiva. So th- that was my introduction to Tantra. It was very much, what it really was, was an introduction to palpable non-duality, the understanding that, there, that everything is made of everything. And with the special quality that non-dual presence that has become everything is made out of love, is blissful, and uh, and is and has power that has a kind of a power in it that you can learn to internalize so that you know you begin to be able to dance with your life in an entirely different way. So we can talk about that if you want to, but that's a brief description of my journey. And then to bring you up to date. I left that world, that scene in 2002 and began to teach independently, uh, mostly through the yoga world, wrote, wrote a column for Yoga Journal for about 10 years called Wisdom, in which I, I really focused on bringing the non-dual teachings of Tantra into a, a very practical daily life context. You know, what do you do with your envy? How do you deal with breaking up with your boyfriend from a, the perspective of the yoga tantra? Because I do believe that that yoga and tantra, besides being sublime, are also really meant to be lived and are a particularly modern way of dealing with the problem of existence. Yeah. Thank you for that bio, Sally. That was really interesting. And actually, even though I've heard it several times, I learned a couple of new things I picked up on new details that I hadn't quite picked up on before. So that was really interesting for me. You know, you started to segue into what Tantra is and what it's not. And I'm wondering if you can perhaps tease that out a little bit. You know, you sort of talked about how foundational energetic practices are to Tantra. And so we didn't talk too much about mantra, maybe just saying a little bit about, you know, what once again distinguishes Tantra from perhaps other schools of of practice and thought in India. And then also, I think it's really worthwhile to talk about what it's not. And you alluded to this with the allusion to Rajneesh, also known to many of our listeners as, as Osho. And this is a very hot topic right now, because as you probably know, the Wild Wild Country documentary is on Netflix. And if people haven't seen that, I would highly recommend it. I'm about two thirds of the way through it. And it's one of the most well done um, documentaries I've seen in a long time. And there's just so much confusion out there about what Tantra is. So if you wouldn't mind sort of stating kind of what it is and what it's not, and, and with respect to this issue of sex and how that got mixed up with Tantra. Yes. Well, of course, as 
as we know, Tantra in the West for years and still to a large extent is kind of associated with, I guess, what we could call it spiritual sex, spiritual sexuality, which, you know, I'm all for, by the way. I, In fact, I think the more we can learn about the how sexuality can be a spiritual path, you know, the better off we are. But so I would say the idea that Tantra is all about sex is actually a, a misreading, and I think there's an academic term for this. Tantra is partly about sex. In other words, there are ritual practices in Tantra and meditative practices that, that show you how to find God in the midst of the sexual act or in the midst of sexual fantasy. So Tantra is not, not about sex, but what it's really about is uniting the, your individual consciousness and not only your your subtle consciousness, but your actual body mind with the divine. And ultimately, you you do it. I I was trained in a non dual tradition, so which is a, very much a take no prisoners. This universe is you know made of one conscious energy, and we're going to find it. <laughs> we're going to discover it. So tantra has been associated in India and continues to be associated in the West with sexual power and, you know, sexual gamesmanship, basically, with magic, with, you know, blessing and cursing, with all sorts of what scholars call antinomian practices, practices that are undertaken in secret, that are often kind of dark. And, you know, because of, you know, the counterculture in the West is kind of fascinated with the dark side, that a lot of those understandings about Tantra have proved titillating in the wider world. But the purpose of those practices ultimately is for people to understand that that everything is sacred, including what we think of as profane and dark. So when people are initiated into some of the scarier tantric practices like, you know, like like putting your hand inside the mouth of a skull or, you know, or having sex in a circle with four people you don't know, which is also a secret tantric ritual. The idea is is to get people past their ideas about what is pure and what is impure, which was a very big deal in India, you know, where in Indian religion, as you know, there is tremendous emphasis on purity, pure food, you know, pure relationships, pure speech. So Tantra says nothing is impure because everything is God. And in that sense, it needs to be considered to be the, let's call it the graduate course in the spirituality, because Traditionally, in order to practice Tantra, in order to be allowed to practice Tantra, if you had a responsible teacher, you needed to go through the preliminary stages of practice, which would include instruction in yogic ethics, which is, as you know, the foundation of, of all yogic practice, instruction in concentration and meditation. You would you would have a fairly rigorous philosophical study program coming to understand what it means to why we call this a non-dual universe what it actually means to say that divine consciousness has become this universe which is as you know a fairly counterintuitive statement and once you got all that then you you know you would you were you would be considered able to get involved in these practices in which so to speak all bets are off your ordinary worldly life was put aside in the tantric circle. Um, and, you know, and your entire aim would be to experience the sacred in the, in the mundane. So tantra, uh, I can give you some of the traditions of tantra, but essentially the tantra, the true tantra, is a system for looking into the heart of reality so as to see its divine nature 
and then to to liberate us from the suffering that we experience because we feel separate from the whole. So the aim of Tantra is wholeness, and it, it aims to do that in in a way that is very radical in traditional, conventional religious terms. It aims to do that by opening you to the recognition that every experience of your life can yield the experience of the divine. One other thing about the, the original tantric traditions is that they are very, they're, they're religious. In other words, that tantra occurs in the context of Hindu and Buddhist religious traditions. So tantra originated in Hindu traditions and of course was taken into Tibetan Buddhism especially and other traditions such as Taoism and even Kabbalistic Judaism have their own tantric teachings, their own tantric philosophy, their own tantric understanding. And one of the, the things that's you know really characteristic of Tantra is that is the recognition of the feminine aspect of the divine, which in Sanskrit is called Shakti. There other in, in Taoism, you know, it's called Tao. The Tao in Taoism is feminine, essentially, uh, not feminine in a gendered sense, but feminine in in the sense that Tantra tells us that the nature of the universe is both being and becoming. It's both still and transcendent. It's also imminent and infinitely creative and constantly becoming something new and different. And that becoming aspect, the dynamic aspect, the creative aspect is associated with the feminine, whereas the still transcendent, you know, apart from the universe aspect is associated with the, with the masculine. So tantric traditions tend to put a lot of emphasis on the feminine, on forms, and the experience of reality as energy. So there's a lot of practices that, that activate the subtle body, the chakras, most of the, uh, we, I mean, we, the teachings on kundalini and chakras and the subtle body that are so significant in the yoga world now are essentially tantric teachings. So one way, one hallmark of a tantric teaching in, in, the, Eastern, in the Eastern tradition is, first of all, recognition of the sacredness of the feminine and two, the the um, emphasis either awakening or working with the awakened kundalini shakti the the interior facing evolution driving energy within the human body and the, the realization that any experience of life however it seems including your darkest emotions can become a path to discovering your own divinity and the divinity of everything that was a wonderful answer. Thank you, Sally. So given that our theme for the show is going to be talking about tantric approaches to working with challenging emotions, how would you like to approach this? Would you like to pick one particular emotion as an example and then talk about what a tantric approach might look like to that, say, anger or any emotion that you'd like to work with? Let's do an overview first. Because sure. Sounds great. I think I think there are a couple of things that, that contemporary teachers and psychotherapists who work with emotions have taken from Tantra. And there is you know, there are a lot of practices that, for instance, Buddhist psychotherapists use that are tantric. So the underlying really principle of the tantric approach to emotions is that because everything is made of sacred energy, that and because mind itself and this, this to me is the most important aspect of, of non-dual tantric understanding you know, for human beings like ourselves, is that the mind itself is made of the same creative energy that manifests the universe. So in other words, your mind is, you know, is not some you know, screwed up stepchild. 
your mind is is actually the, the condensed form of the great consciousness that has manifested all of these forms in the universe. And what that means is, for our purposes, is that when thoughts come up, when emotions come up, they are coming, of course, through your you know, they're coming through your, your neurophysiological system, they're coming through your biology, they're coming through your, your neurochemistry on the physical level, but on a deeper level, on a more basic level, they are, let's say, appearances, they're arisings inside this sort of miniature version of the great creative consciousness that we call our, our own mind and, you know, an emotional mind. So if you understand that about emotions, then I find that that is the one piece of information that it, that has been life changing for me in the way I work with you know, with my own thoughts and with my own emotions. Because it, if you have that understanding, you you will not, or at least you will begin to not demonize your unex, you know your your emotions, no matter how unacceptable and painful they are. And it's in that refusal to demonize your your negativities or you know or your ex- excessive positivities that that Tantra lives. So that's the kind of basis of it. And in my experience, there are two basic Tantric approaches to emotion, if you don't mind my being a little abstract for a second. There's one that essentially, let's say, privileges awareness. So, you know, and in that way of understanding reality, you, you will have done quite a lot of work to start to recognize that you're not your physical body, you're not your physical body because you you can be aware of your physical body, so therefore it can't be you. You're not your mind because you can be aware of your mind. And eventually you come to recognize that the only the only self that doesn't disappear in different states is awareness itself. So and that's a that's a, a recognition that's one of the basic recognitions of non-dual country. So if you if that's your approach and you have an emotion come up like anger or grief, then one of your basic strategies would be to focus on awareness, focus on that which is aware of the emotion, and then to let yourself feel the emotion. And the way I experience it is to actually toggle back and forth between awareness of your own awareness and feeling the emotion until what starts to happen is that the emotion starts to kind of dissolve into awareness and reveals itself as energy that, you know, that stops telling you its story and can, you know, can go from being very hot, hard, painful, difficult, suffering energy to being, let's say, if, if it's anger you're working with, to being kind of energizing and, uh, and activating. So that's one of the ways to work directly with emotions through awareness. I would say that's, that's an advanced method. The method that is equally tantric but more doable for most people is to focus very much on the feeling sense, the felt sense of the energy in the body, and then to begin to hold space around that energy and allow your attention, your as um, Tara Brock, who's a very, very good Buddhist psychotherapist who works a lot with, with Buddhist tantric methods of working with emotion. Um, you know, the, the idea of putting kind attention onto a, a painful emotion and then expanding your awareness so that you have a sense of space holding that feeling. So that's the other fundamental tantric practice for working with emotion. And all the interventions that I've created or learned and that I use with students 
are in one or another of those poles, either become really, really deeply aware of the feeling sense, the energy inside emotion, and hold it, hold space around it, or become the witness and hold the emotion and let it kind of resolve itself into the recognition that, that everything is being held in awareness. Sally, I want to ask a question about that. And it's I'm so glad you mentioned Tara Brock, because as I, I've told you, in addition to spending a lot of time studying meditation with you, you know, the other teachers that I've learned it with, I'm, I'm in this mindfulness meditation teacher training with Tara Brock and Jack Cornfield. And as you were describing these approaches, you know, I really noticed strong parallels between, you know, the mindfulness approaches that they're teaching and what you're describing as tantric approaches. And I also would love for you to kind of draw these distinctions or also where it's similar and, and different for our audience, because mindfulness now is so popular in the, you know, sort of the popular lexicon. But I'm wondering if it's because I've studied with Tara and Jack specifically that maybe their teachings have a little bit more of a tantric flavor than other Buddhist teachers. And that's why I'm I'm perceiving the similarity. Yeah, I think that's true. So, well, two things. First, Tantra and Tantric approaches have absolutely infiltrated both the yoga, the, you know, the world of yoga, especially in India and also in the West, but also contemporary Buddhism, especially Western, you know, American style Buddhism. So, and part of that is because the Tibetans have a, as you know, have a very, Tibetan Buddhism has a very, very strong Tantric component, which we, we can talk about separately, you know, because Tibetan Buddhism, like classical Hindu Buddhism, is very, very much about deities and mantras, you know, as well as the inner body. Whereas mindfulness style, the, you know, what would you call, I guess they're Theravadan Buddhists, Tara and... Right. They kind of all studied with, in Thailand, like Jack did, they, you know, Thailand, Burma. But they're also, they're also Americans, you know, they spent a lot of time with Chogim Trungpa, who was a Tantrika. So I would say that those are two teachers, and there are others, for instance, Lama Surya Das, who are, they're Buddhists, but they're, they're more eclectic, they're more tantric, they're more about how do we make this work in daily life. So in terms of mindfulness, I just would say, first of all, you know, mindfulness is the basic meditation practice, right? So in other words, focusing on those aspects of your personal and subtle reality that will help entrain you inward are where meditation starts. So there, I don't think there's a tradition in the world which doesn't be, you know, have you begin with mindfulness of breath, right? So, you know, for instance, I always, I always begin meditation by just focusing on my breath and, and in, a, in a kind of classically mindful way of I notice it in my nostrils and I notice where it's moving and then, and then I begin a more tantric practice of finding the breath in the central channel. But this body is set up and, I, and this is one of the things that, that Buddha taught, but it didn't originate with him. You know, it goes back to the Vedic practices, to the Upanishadic practices. And of course, I'm sure in, in other traditions, sit down, focus on your breath, you know, notice the sensations in your body. So basic mindfulness is a universal practice, and which is a bit different than the mindfulness movement that is taking over <laughs> meditation. And because I'd, I'm not a mindfulness practitioner, except in the natural way that everyone is a mindfulness practitioner, I don't know very much about it. I notice, having listened to some of Jack's 
meditation instructions that he's, you know, that he does a lot of visualization meditation, which is very tantric. One of the things that tantra offered into the canon of meditation practices is the idea of formal visualization, you know, whether it's a whether it's a place in nature or as you know or your happy place or a very complex deity visualization or you know a simpler visualization of a flame this understanding that that the imagination can be cultured and used for upliftment and that by using practices like formal visualization you not only train yourself in concentration which is really a prerequisite for reaching for one of a better word the goal of meditation it also transforms your consciousness. So if you know, if instead of letting your your mind go haywire imagining terrible scenarios or fantasizing, which most of us do unconsciously, if you harness the mind energies on imagining a flame or imagining your body as the body of the goddess Aphrodite, or holding the image of a beautiful, calm, peaceful lake, or you know, the most beautiful holy mountain you can imagine. Practices like that, which focus the mind on energetic pictures that create calm, exaltation, etc. It's just, you know, it's one of the most skillful practices there is for self-transformation as, you know, as I think we're very aware of now that now that doctors and insurance companies give give out CDs of visual meditation so that you can feel that, you know, the chemotherapy that you're taking is made of light and, you know, all the little cancer particles in your body, we know the power of visualization. So I don't know how powerful it is for shifting your physical body. I'm an agnostic on that topic, but I can say that it's very, very good for shifting the way you feel in your mind and emotional body. So I would say any teacher who uses visualization and who works with energies, you know, with especially mental and physical energies, is to some extent a tantric teacher. You know, and so there's there's a big difference between a teacher like most of the American Buddhist teachers that I know anyway, and some of the t- traditional mindfulness teachers like the one I know best is Goenka, who has been trained many, many contemporary American and European meditators in the 70s and onward. You know, it's that kind of practice is very much, very rigorous step-by-step. You focus on the nostrils and you focus on another part of the body and you're never supposed to let your mind stray from it. In that kind of practice, you put your mind in a kind of a cage and eventually the, you know, the discursive mind then gives up roaming and gets quiet and you you know your consciousness begins to expand a tantric teacher would say okay your your mind is busy so try imagining your entire body as made of light and see if that helps settle your mind or create a moon over your head and feel the rays of the moonlight moving through you or recite a mantra so you know or focus on a body part in other words a tantric teacher and this is one of the hallmarks of tantra which i think is really important and perhaps a difference between the way mindfulness practice is currently taught and the way this you know rather more psychically adaptive practice is taught is that in tantra we we say okay what kind of person are you what kind of mind do you have you know are you do you tend to be more responsive to to words are you visual or do you know do you close your eyes and just see blackness so the tantric practices are very much based on the understanding that there's no such thing as one size fits all in spiritual practice so 
you know, they present you with an integrated approach to practice, which which would include physical health, would include some form of yogic practice, would include food practice, would include social practice, um, and would include the, the types of meditation that are appropriate for you at this particular moment in your life, which at sometimes may be a very strict mindfulness practice, or maybe a visual practice might be study. So in other words, the tantrikas are about whatever works. It's it's at its best, not a doctrinaire approach to practice. And that said, any tradition can become fundamentalist and tantric practitioners are no less subject to fundamentalism than anybody else. But in general, tantra is about using what's coming up for you as a doorway into the divine. So mindfulness practice, as I understand it, and I, you know, I'm not a mindfulness practitioner in any official formal sense, mindfulness practice tends to have only one or two modalities for a meditator. And I think the way it's currently taught, it's either you, you, know, you do mindfulness of body, breath, thoughts, and awareness, or you do some form of loving-kindness meditation. And if, if you're on a tantric Buddhist path, as you, became, as you become more deeply trained in that path, you might go on to the kind of tantric practices that, that, are, you know, that are classic, that is visualizations, working with the centers in the body, with the chakras, working with kundalini, meditating ultimately on your own consciousness as consciousness. But the difference between the tantric practices that people like me teach and that are popularly taught, because tantra has, as we said earlier, it's really infused itself into spirituality and yoga really all over the world, but especially in the yoga world, especially Indian yoga-based traditions like Tibetan Buddhism and, you know, and the various offshoots of Hindu yoga. So tantric practice is based on the understanding that one size does not fit all. So the practices that you will do at a particular point in your life uh, may be very different from the practices that you do later on. In fact, the practices that you do when you're in a certain kind of mood or frame of mind might be different than the practices that you do when you're another in another mood. So Tantra prides itself on having an approach to turning inward and discovering your own essential self that can be adapted by anybody, any place, in any state of mind. And that I think is its real genius. So Tantra, you know, Tantric practices will include Tantric practices are famous for working a lot with mantra. Tantric practices are famous for working with the chakras, with the energies of, of the chakra system, for working a lot with kundalini, and for a very, very skillful presentation of the types of visual visualizations that, that can turn your mind from the mundane to the sacred. And I can't remember if this was on the part that didn't get recorded, but I believe that the most important thing we can do in our early years of meditation practice or of spiritual practice in general is to cultivate, and the word that's usually used is purify, our consciousness, our, our, our inner mind field. And you know, pretty much all of spiritual practices intends to do that in, in different ways, by different methods. Tantra is often called the, the direct path or the, you know, the fast path, the fast track path, because tantric practices work directly with the mind, with the understanding that the mind is made of consciousness, is made of energy, and that it 
it can be formed in different ways. Now, of course, uh, you know, we, we know so much about neuroplasticity that we understand that this is, this is not simply a subtle phenomenon. It's also, of course, a neurophysiological, biochemical phenomenon. But Tantra has, you know, the Tantric sages had this very profound understanding that, that if you introduce a sacred form into your consciousness, that your, the energy, I call them the particles of consciousness within you, mold themselves into that form instead of, you know, going on about how much you hate your cousin and did you remember the laundry and all the other ways in which we distract ourselves and mundaneize our lives. So Tantra is all about cultivating expanded mind states through what it, through any means necessary. And, and the thing I love about Tantra is that it's all about what works. You know, if what works for you is a complicated visualization of a guardian deity with sangs and, you know, attendance, that's great. If what works for you is paying mindful attention to the breath, that's great. If what works for you is mantra and visualizing Krishna in your heart or Jesus in your heart, that's great. Those are all tantric practices. Because in tantra, what the sages understood, and I think this is one reason why it's so modern, is that we need to be able to use anything in order to transform our consciousness. So in other words, and this is, I would say, this is probably my ideal, my ideal form of Tantra, because of course, you know, Tantra is like any other tradition or series of traditions. There are many, many ways to approach it. But in my ideal form of Tantra, we would all of us acquire a set of skills for transforming our own consciousness and putting that transformed consciousness out into the world, we would have a toolbox of practices that would help us go from, let's say, dullness to vitality when we needed to, or to transform our anger into pure energy or our grief into love. You know, we would have practices for for making our sexuality an act of worship and making our eating a way of tuning into the primordial bliss that lets us enjoy our food. Tantra wants to do that, wants to make every moment of life worshipful, you know, adorable, deeply pleasurable. And, you know, in that way, it, it, it does contain the potential for helping us transform the planet as well as ourselves. Wow. Wonderful. Really well said, Sally. Thank you. So how would you like to progress from here? Do you want to pick a particular emotion to work with and give that as sort of an example to elaborate these principles? Or are there any other sort of crucial kind of big picture points that you'd still like to make? No, I think that covers the big picture points. And I want to give I want to talk about a practice that I like to teach because it's it's it kind of fulfills all those understandings about Tantra. And you can do it with either anger or sadness. So you can choose it, whichever one you want. If you we'll, we'll just do it together. And I'll I'll you know, whatever you pick, I'll find one myself. So I'll do it along with you. Sounds okay. great. Okay, so let's pick anger. Is that okay? Absolutely. Anger is a good one. Anger is a good one. So <laughs> the first principle of working with emotions in an energetic way is to drop the story. So this is, let's say, the conventional wisdom about, about emotions. In my experience, before you drop the story, you have to tell yourself the story. You know, it's how we are as humans. So what I would ask you to do is to find an incident that brings up feelings of anger. 
and it could be your latest your, your latest irritation with your partner or something unfair that's happening in the world or you know, it can, if you're an, if you're an American liberal it could be about the current political situation so just find something that you're angry about that you can get charged about and then the second step which we won't do here, but if someone is doing this at home, I would actually suggest pausing the pausing your computer and and doing what I'm about to suggest. Write an account of the event or the incident and include the words that you can find which most exactly describe your feelings. So, so you write the story, not the novel version, the you know the short story version, and then you circle the feeling words. You know, so if for instance, let's take something fairly neutral. I saw something on the news that infuriates me, and I can feel this rising tide of rage. And so, to try to describe what the rage feels like—you know, it's burning in my chest. It's like it's smoke is coming out of my ears, or whatever, whatever words you use to describe it. One of the things that you probably find when you're writing the incident is that it's never just one emotion. You know, there might be some anger, there might be some grief, there might be some fear. So, you know, you just try to describe it emotively as best you can. And then you read through your, what you've written, you close your eyes, and you find the gestalt, the kind of the fullness of that feeling, you know, which might be partly anger, might be partly fear, might be partly judgment, you know, sadness, uh, sorry, judgment is not an emotion, <laughs> might be partly pride. So, and you find it, then you go into your body and find out where you feel it in your body. So again, with anger, I tend to feel almost all emotions in my chest somewhere, but other people feel anger in the gut, you know, or, or maybe you get angry and, and your right shoulder goes up around your ears because that's one of your body tells. So you find where it is in your body and then you focus on where it is in your body. As Tara Brock says, you investigate it with intimate attention, which is, I love that phrase. It's like you, you know, the, the feeling of anger or the feeling of grief or the feeling of, of fear is for most of us not really acceptable, right? So when we feel those emotions, we tend to turn away from them. And even if we don't, you know, go and get ice cream or yell at our cat, we tr do something to distract ourselves. Often the distraction is to rehearse the story over and over again. But this fundamental act of working with your emotions is turn into it energetically. And at this point, you've, you've dropped the story. You're not letting yourself go into the he said, she said. And if if it works for you, you know, as you find the feelings, you see if they have a shape and you begin to pay attention to the tactile sensations, you know, the sharpness, the hardness, the, you know, the swampiness, however, however, the burning quality of some emotion, the kind of sinking feeling of others, you find the the texture of the feeling of the emotion. And once you've found it, you can also create a, you know, find a color for it. You can give it a shape, a color, a texture, and then imagine a circle of space around it and around your body. So the circle of space is there. And then the, the feeling is there. The, the, um, the sensation, the emotional feeling is there in the body and you just hold the two together. So, and again, I, I like to toggle back and forth. So go into the feeling and go into the sense of space. And little by little, you may notice that the edges of the feeling are starting to morph. So it becomes less concentrated, less focused. If it's very strong, you may have to stay with it a while and you may have to introduce some other modalities, which I'll talk about in a minute. But 
there's another practice for working with in, in this particular situation, which I learned from Stephen Walensky, who's a very skillful psychotherapist as well as a non-dual teacher. And it goes like this. So once you've found the felt sense, the energy of the feeling, and found the space around it, then you imagine, this is how I like to do it, that a big hand comes comes out of nowhere, eases the energy bundle of your you know, your anger feeling or your grief feeling and just crunches it into particles. And if that feels too violent, you can imagine a broom sweeping it away. In other words, once you've recognized the energetic quality of that feeling and created enough space around it so that there's a measure of detachment or standing aside from it, then you can use your imagination to play with it, to, you know, to dissolve it, to change its shape, to be creative with it. And one of the things I often like to do is is to ask people to dissolve it and then to recreate it, to imagine yourself taking particles of consciousness, particles of energy, and recreating that, you know, that, let's say, red, hot, sharp, harsh anger energy in that part of your body. Recreate it, and then once again dissolve it. You know, take the broom and sweep it away, crunch it in your, between your fingers, blow it away. And after you've done that a couple of times, your psyche, you know, maybe your neurochemistry itself gets the idea that that this feeling, while sharp, painful, and recurrent, is not something concrete and fixed, but is actually made of particles of something infinitely fluid. And you can work with it, you can play with it, it will change, dissolve, transform, morph, especially if you don't do this with the attitude that you want to get rid of it, but rather if you if you continue to kind of hold it in space. So that practice you know, that I just talked about is kind of a foundational, you know, the practice of writing out the story so that you're really very aware of what the feelings are, finding it in your body, feeling into it in your body, getting into the sensations of it, which I have found is tremendously important. You know, in other words, the best way to take yourself out of the story of why you're up angry or upset is to get into the felt sense of it in the body because that's what you can work with in a way that will actually change it. You know, obviously there are many practices that are very skillful for for working directly with thoughts, with, you know, with um, with story, with changing stories, with substituting positive for negative. And they're all skillful methods. They're all skillful means that, that, are, that are very helpful in the process of self-transformation and working with your tendencies. But in the end, I've discovered if we can go into the felt sense of an, of an emotion, find it in the body and work with it directly as energy, that's when we have a chance of really transforming the tendency. And I, I, I know there is a neurophysiological explanation for why this works also. So once you've done that, then there are many, many ways that you can work with that felt sense. I, you know, I mean, you could ask it what it has to tell you. You could ask it how old it is. You know, you can actually get a get a feeling for the, you know, for the way in which deep, swampy childhood feelings get triggered by current situations. You can do a, you know, kind of more analytic approach to it, or you can simply continue to hold it in awareness and allow it to transform. The other thing that becomes very, very skillful in working with your emotions 
It's really, first of all, giving yourself permission to be creative, to feel that your emotional palette is, it's not just something that you're trying to surmount or turn into something more acceptable, but it is actually a creative field of energy that, that you can play with. You know, in other words, for instance, to give you a, you know, an example, one of my mother's friends was one of the first really kick-ass female litigators in Los Angeles back in the 50s and was very successful and very, very angry. And when I first got into meditation, I was trying to explain to her why one would want to meditate and what meditation was about. And I mentioned the word peace. And she said, peace? I wouldn't want peace. I mean, my anger is what I use in my work. And of course, she was, that's true. She used her anger in her work. You know, she's a typical intense lawyer. So, the, and so then the question is, once you start really looking into your emotional, your temperament, your emotional temperament, and understanding why a particular, why you cling to certain emotions, why you're averse to other emotions, there's another tantric methodology that's prominent in both Hindu and Buddhist tantra, which is to connect the emotional flavor with a particular form of sacred energy. And in my tradition, I, I would call it deity energy. The Buddhists have a a whole kind of map of they call the five Buddha families that you know is one way of mapping emotions. But in the tradition that I follow, in the tantric tradition that I follow, there is an understanding that that there are certain sacred energies, higher energies, powerful, subtle energies that carry a divine flavor of the human emotions that we experience in an unskillful and you know and often painful fashion. So that for instance, there's a form of the divine feminine who is named Sita, who is often called the incarnation of grief. She went through incredibly painful experiences in her marriage and in her life and learned how to live in grief with love. And when you bring her energy, or for instance, the energy of certain forms of the Virgin Mary into your consciousness, you can feel the sacred quality in grief and grief starts to turn to compassion. I guess, how would you build on our previous discussion of a tantric approach to working with emotions, whether general principles or taking a specific point? Really good question. So the core thing, the core principle of tantric work with pretty much everything, anything we do is, is this understanding that Inside every emotion, inside every thought, inside every situation is a particular kind of energy. And that the energy in any situation or any feeling or any emotion can be worked with not by trying to increase it or by trying to make it go away, but by entering into it, becoming very present with it, and then allowing the energy to morph because as you focus into any manifestation of energy, it's going to do what energy does, which is move, change, transform. So the, all of the tantric practices that I know of for working with emotions, the ones that really work, help us in some way find a way to both enter into emotional energy and also to activate what we could call its light side or its, its free side. 
you know, every emotion, you know, every human emotion has, let's call it a light side and a dark side. That is an aspect that is a, a profoundly important part of our human embodiment and a part that is kind of the product of our conditioning and our stories and our various neurotic manifestations. So for instance, fear, which is of course a, a pervading and generally seen as negative emotion, fear is is actually a, a very heightened form of alertness. So, you know, that that quality that that when it gets out of control we experience is anxiety or, you know, or out and out panic. And everything in between. In its pure form, it's that it's that heightening of our senses that tells us it's important to pay attention. You know, so and it's a very instinctive feeling. So for instance, if you're driving and a car swerves into your lane, there's going to be an instinctive alertness and a movement away. You know, you'll you'll move the car if you're a practiced driver almost without thinking. And then later, you know, five minutes later, when you think about the fact that you almost got sideswiped by a fast-moving vehicle, you might feel the adrenaline in your system. You might name it as fear, and you might actually have a you know kind of a mini freakout. So it's very interesting when you look at emotions from that point of view. Like to like to look into an emotion and say, okay, what in this is let's call it evolutionarily effective? You know, for instance, sadness, the the feeling of grief is actually a a process that lets us that gives us the signals that it's time to let go of something, you know, to let something die or to let, to process a loss or just to move forward. And if you really, really tune into the feeling of sadness at its core, what you eventually discover about it is that it's, it's literally cleansing, you know, that it, it helps us clear out old stuff. And the sadness may be a story that we're telling ourselves about, about a loss, but at a deeper level, sadness is the, it's the signal to let something dissolve, to let something die. So understanding that, you know, the power, the usefulness of a particular emotion is a very tantric way of working with your emotional resonances. You know, your, your passing emotions and also the, the deeper tendencies that, deeper emotional tendencies that many of us have. So that's the, the basic principle. And then most of the practices that, that tantrically engage with emotions are based on that principle. And, you know, one that, that I especially resonate with, and I, th- I think you do too, is the practice of tonglen, you know, where, where you do something that seems tremendously counterintuitive. You, you actually, when you come across an uncomfortable feeling, an unpleasant feeling, instead of trying to make it go away or uh, trying to talk yourself out of it. You feel the emotion and you breathe it in. You actually breathe, for instance, if the emotion you're working with is anger, you breathe in the hot, sharp, heavy feelings of anger. You breathe them in through your heart. And and then you, you actually imagine the energy moving through your heart out the back of your body and dissolving into space behind you. You know, and then you breathe out feeling that the qualities of spaciousness, light, presence, love flow out with the exhalation. And you, so in other words, the most powerful tantric practice for working with what we might call obstructive emotions turns out to be to accept them, to take them in, to draw them in, not so to speak, to leave them in your heart, and keep them in your heart, but to breathe them in through your heart into the space behind your body, and then to breathe out spaciousness, light, energy into that feeling. 
And so in this way, we transmute an emotion, not by pushing it away, but by giving space for it, for making space for it, accepting it, taking it in. And that practice, which there's you know, a, a very, very beautiful step-by-step protocol for, and you know, if you want to learn the practice, I really suggest the most easiest sort of 101 version of it is in a Pema Chodron book called Start Where You Are. She actually explains the step-by-step process. And you know, a practice, the practice of breathing in your emotions and then breathing out, breathing in negative emotions, breathing in difficult emotions, and then breathing out loving, spacious, light feelings into those emotions. We can do it with our own emotions. We can then do it with the negative feelings of someone that we know well or that we care about. And we can do it with people we don't know. I, I had one of my most extraordinary experiences of transmuting emotions once when I was feeling extremely angry and, uh, and I, was, I was doing this process. And I began to, at the, and in the third stage of it, I began to imagine all the angry people in the world and all the reasons they might be angry. And I, I, you know, I was imagining enraged gunmen in Chicago and, you know, children who were having temper tantrums and the people in Palestinian refugee camps who've, you know, who are so enraged at their fate and many, many images of angry people including, you know, people who have good reasons for their anger. And, and I began to breathe them in and then to breathe out feelings of love, peace, light into any of those images that I could find, that I could see. And I had this deep realization that, that my anger is not my anger. It's the anger. It's an energy that's in the field, that's in the planet. And that by, by actually taking it in, offering it to the energy of spaciousness behind us and then breathing out love into the situation, we actually do change the nature of the energy, the emotional energy in the world in incremental ways for sure, but certainly effectively for ourselves and for the people whose, whose lives our lives touch. And you know, this is one of the deep intentions of tantric practice. It is to change the world, to to make a difference in the suffering on the planet, and to use the the wisdom about energy to directly intervene with the painful or negative or suffering energies, not with the intention of making them go away, but with the intention of allowing them to release the negative energy and then become energies that can be useful, that can be uplifting, that can propel us forward in a path. Yeah, you know, Sally, when you just shared that part right there about your anger not being your anger, but sort of belonging to the larger collective sense of anger that all human beings feel at these common experiences, I really thought of my own experience with losing my father and very much the same thing with grief, you know, and fortunately I'd been, I'd gotten into Buddhism and had been working with a lot of those ideas pretty intensively for a period of time. It was relatively recent, but, you know, even six months going into right before I would say he passed away. And that really helped me to, to deal with his loss a lot better. And I had similar insight as well after a while where I was sitting with these emotions and I just had the realization that as painful as it was, you know, in a way, my the loss wasn't my loss. It's the same loss that every human being experiences when they lose their parents. And 
that feeling was freeing in a number of ways. For one, it makes one feel not so alone, right? And when we don't feel so alone and we feel that connection, we feel more love and support. Yeah. Yeah. And we feel more connected. And eventually we begin to realize that, that what connects us is, you know, is our humanness, is our emotional life, but it's also something subtler and deeper. You know, so that, for instance, I'm very sorry to hear about your father and, and also to, to recognize that the people that we love don't actually leave us because we're still connected to that which is most intrinsic to them, which is their energy. You know, that's still, that's still present. You know, so, so working with, with energies in this way is so, it's so incredibly powerful for, for connecting us, for keeping us in relationship to not only our personal world, but to the whole world. And to the natural world, it's really amazing to, way this, to see the way some animals grieve the loss of other animals like elephants um, have a strong sense of yeah. grief. And of course, you know, primates do as well. But yeah. yeah, I just wanted to share that. Thank you so much. So many of those things that you said were, were really beautiful. And I want to take a closer look at the Tonglen practice because even though I've been, I actually think I haven't specifically learned the Tonglen Tibetan practice, though I've heard of it. You know, it sounds very similar. The kind of work that I have done in terms of going into emotions, I've done more with tantric practices with you, you know, and, and also right. with with Tara and Jack, you know, even, you know, you're probably familiar with the RAIN framework for working with emotions. That's similar yes. in a way as well. Yeah. Yes, very similar. But it makes me want to read Pema Chodron's book. I'm reading actually another one of her books right now. She's great. Yeah, she is great. And, you know, one of the things that I've come to see, you know, in, in my, let's call it comparative spirituality studies, which which have, you know, kind of occurred sort of very naturally over the years, is that it what becomes clear is that there are certain practices, certain approaches to life that you find in tradition after tradition because they're true, <laughs> because they work. And Tonglen is one of those practices. It's it's a it really, really works. It really changes your relationship to emotions, to difficult situations, you know, to, to towards pretty much everything that you might have aversion for. It you know is it's your relationship to it is going to be transformed if if you're willing to take it in to accept it and then to to offer something positive into it. So it it is one of the I believe most powerful and important tantric practices that is found in traditions all over the world. And another one that I wanted to mention, we won't get into it much, is the power in language, the power in words. You know, which in in both in tantric Hinduism and Buddhism and Kabbalah. The power in sacred language and words that have only sacred meaning, you know, is such an intrinsic part of the process. And in the tantric traditions, there's this core understanding that we create through language. In other words, that through the vibrations inherent in language, we actually change reality. And you know, the, the tantric traditions, the, the Vedic traditions of India, you know, as well as the Kabbalistic traditions basically hold the view that original creation is, you know, is energetic, is vibratory. And of course, they express that vibration as the utterance of a sound that has creative power. So a major aspect of Tantra is using specific empowered language, empowered mantras to call forth transformative states, to call forth sacred states, 
And in terms of working with emotions, this is also a very, very powerful practice and modality. And as you say, we could go on with this for days. <laughs> Do you mind if I ask you a question on it? And it won't lead us into a, a day long, but you know, what, I, I'm conscious of this because I shared this with you, you know, when I started studying before I really started studying with you and also Richard Freeman, you know, I was very much like a Buddhist atheist. I had very much an aversion to anything that was seemingly religious, you know, chanting, mantras, deities, anything like that. And through working with both, you know, you and Richard, I really came to appreciate the value of, of these practices and of relating to these kind of symbols even if you want to strictly think about it that way, as kind of a symbol, as a metaphor, as an archetype, that there's so much value in. And I know we're going to get to visualization and deities in a second, but just to hang on mantra, you know, you talked about the the power of sacred language, and there's something in particular that is very powerful about certain languages like Sanskrit or, or Hebrew. And I've definitely found that to be the case with Sanskrit. Um, and now it's part of my regular practice. So I, I would, first of all, make that plug for people who are even very skeptical and have an aversion to things that are seemingly religious that you can really view it as a technique in and of itself that there's something about the practice itself that it's not an invocation of a god per se that that still works on you as you said in a vibratory way and has great potency and at the same time my question would be how can and i'm thinking about this now as i mentioned to you where i'm going to be working with people in a more multicultural and also secular setting how can we use something like mantra in a secular setting you know do you use for example even i've heard people use a mantra like for example you know let go like having right. people focus on something like that just to help them to kind of let go and loosen up i'm, I'm wondering if you have any kind of suggestions for how to work with it in a more secular setting or for people who aren't ready to kind of start working with uh, something like Sanskrit or Hebrew yet? Well, that phrase you suggested, let go, is I think very, very powerful for people. Um, I, it, When I'm teaching meditation in so-called secular settings, I often use the phrase, I am. And, and I tell people to remove their name from it, you know, to remove the, the predicate from it and just say, I am. And People find, I mean, all kinds of people, including people who've never meditated before, is that there's you know, there's a, a state of relaxation that starts to come. There's a feeling of really of connection with your own being that this phrase brings forth. And you know, the the great direct path teacher Nisargadatta uh, has a very famous teaching. He says um, the true state of enlightenment is the nonverbal experience of I am, which is an experience of pure being, but if you practice with the verbal experience of I am, it will eventually take you to the recognition of the nonverbal I am, you know, which is your your soul, your essence, your your being, and also, as we know, the the portal into higher energy states, sacred states. So a word like that or a word like love or trust, I think work very well. And there are many times when in my own meditation I'm drawn to working with an English word because it expresses a, a mood, you know, or a positive emotion that I, I want to cultivate. So that approach to meditation, something like something like peace, you know, a, a word that expresses a condition that most of us want, is a very good substitute for a Sanskrit mantra and and will take you quite quickly into meditation if you know if 
something that focuses on it. The thing I, I would say about deity practice, or as Ken Wilber says, second person uh, spirituality, that is the, the I-thou uh, relationship with a, a subtler, vaster, sacred other, which as you say, you can work with deity images from any tradition and with any degree of involvement. You know, So uh, for instance, one of the the powerful, I would call it deity images that's, that is, again, universal, is the image of the sun. You know, we, there are many, many traditions where we meditate on the sun in the belly or the sun in the heart or the sun over our head. And the sun is, you know, it's, it's a form that we experience every day of our lives, if we live in California anyway. So it has, you know, both a physically nourishing feeling to it, it's light, which is really not just the symbol, but the substance of reality. You know, the, the, the light of the sun is said to be a physical representation of the light of consciousness, which is pervades everything, is far brighter than the physical sun. And yet the sun can be both a symbol and a portal into that light. And in the same way, the forms of deities, of gods and goddesses, for those who are comfortable with working with humanoid forms, uh, have extraordinary resonance with our unconscious, as Jung very so brilliantly pointed out, you know, that we that we hold in the unconscious entire entire gestalt of emotions and thoughts and states that can be symbolized by the by the figure of, for example, Jesus. If you you know if you have a resonance with Jesus, with Lakshmi, the goddess of abundance. If you have a resonance with Lakshmi you know, with a sacred animal. So finding a form that can be an object of meditation and which carries a resonance for you that, that resonates with the deeper parts of your unconscious can be profoundly transformative, even if you, you know, even if you don't, if you don't believe in, you know, in deities or God or um, anything other than energy and neurophysiology and, you know, emptiness and the power of clearing your mind. I, Jean Houston, the, you know the um, what would you call her? She's a mythologist and cutting edge thinker. Uh, she, I once heard her say that every powerfully successful person she's ever known has had an archetypal guide that they related to. You know, which for many people in the Christian West would, might be Christ or the Virgin Mary, but it can be some, something quite secular, like Jung's famous. Uh, the figure of the old man who used to come in his dreams and visions and whom he saw as a guide. I have a dream vision of a Chinese sage that shows up in my dream life at important moments. And you know, that it, it's like the unconscious will give you forms, figures who, who hold energies that, that we need at a given moment. And the, the, the practice of deity energy, of deity, you know, deity meditation, it's really a skill. It's a technology for, for beginning to open up those those places in your personal unconscious that collect that connect to the great collective unconscious and can you know literally I think of deities deity energies as energetic portals that if you you know if you really connect to them that that portal of the form opens up into really vast treasures of love and wisdom and insight and sacred energy of all kinds so it's not necessary to connect to deity but i've found that for many many people who 
intellectually understand the value of meditation and you know and the value of yoga but don't have a, an emotional resonance with it are very much kindled by forming a relationship with some kind of subtle form you know in a certain sense human beings probably all human beings carry a kind of god image within us that we find extraordinarily helpful to connect to both because you know the the god image is, is a kind of helper who can give us refuge in difficult times but also because when when we really connect to a sense of deity the sense of a sacred human or humanoid form whether it's a you know a a, a deity like lakshmi or kali or a, a someone like buddha or one of the great teachers or gurus it organizes your own consciousness in a in a way that brings you closer and closer to your own sacred essence it does it makes sense i mean we all need mental maps we do right, to understand things and you know the kind of retort that a lot of people get, like to give is <laughs> oh well it's sort of like when you talk about people with dual non-dual as well even though i know i share your preference there but you know people will say well it's all it's all one anyways, or with, with meditating on something that's not a form, right? It's, well, you've got to get beyond the forms. But the reality is, you know, I think very few people, have, a lot of people may understand that intellectually, but very few people have an actual direct experience of that. So it's a portal, as you say, sometimes, right? It's an entry point and you can start there and then you can let go of the form, or as the Buddha said, right about the Dharma, you can use it as a raft. And then once you cross, you don't have to hold on to the raft. You don't need to carry it on your back. You can let go. But I do think that there's something to be said that it's a powerful entry point because there is something about visualization and we anthropomorphize things because we are human, right? That is very powerful for us. And the same thing with language, right? Yeah. Language is elemental. We can't have ideas and thought without language and, and mantra. And these visualizations are, are very powerful forms for entering ultimately into the formless. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And there's also, again, there's one of the secrets of mantra and deity practice and devotional practice in general, which is not everybody's cup of tea, but is surprisingly powerful for someone who has been, you know, living as a rationalist modernist and suddenly discovers that that actually doing some form of devotional practice opens the heart, you know, it, it helps you feel more connected to your heart, helps you feel more loving, it can kindle compassion. So yeah, my basic principle in in my life and especially in my inner life is is really to be let yourself be experimental, you know, to to look at your prejudices and your conceptual ideas about what life is like, and then then see what will happen if you step outside your conceptual framework and try a practice that you might not have been drawn to, you know, and see what effect it has on your consciousness. Because we are so much bigger and broader and so much more mysterious than we know. So part of what spiritual practice can offer us is a way of tapping into the unknown parts of ourselves, you know, the unknown skill sets and superpowers that all of us carry. And deity practice and mantra practice are well known in the tantric tradition for we're actually carrying a kind of a, an empowering code that can, you know, help us tap into some of these qualities in ourselves that are not so easy if we're just sticking with what seems rational to us. I do think a, 
That's a great point, Sally. Having a quality of openness and a willingness to experiment. You and I discussed a little bit yesterday, I believe we're offline, just sort of the the popular notion of sort of the consciousness hacking approach that's really popular, you know, and within kind of the sort of modern, secular, educated crowd, many of whom have a lot of interest in Eastern traditions. And so we have a lot of overlap. Um, I think we both know plenty of people in that crowd. and, And I would say that I certainly share some affinity with the approach, though. I think there are also legitimate critiques as to the the limitations or shortcomings of it. But I think one one positive quality to that sort of spirit of viewing things as kind of a consciousness hack, it, it does invite a willingness to play, right, to experiment. And I think one thing that really jumps out as I've studied and just kind of read biographies and read the writings of a lot of these great spiritual teachers, it doesn't matter what tradition they're from. And it's not universally true. I'm thinking of an exception like Krishnamurti, who's someone who I have a, a lot of respect for and really like. But in general, a lot of these great masters tend to have a sense of playfulness. And I think yeah. that's so important. That's really that's a big key. You know, I think it's on the one hand, like life is precious. You've, you've got, well, some people might think one shot, some people might think many, but you need to make the most of it. But on the other hand, don't take it so seriously, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think you're, you're totally right. Playfulness, the, the, the spirit of experimentation and the desire to know what's true, you know, not to stop at what you think is true and not to stop at what someone you respect tells you is true, but to really be interested at every moment in, in what's true and what's real and at a deeper and deeper level. And I, I think one of the things that you discover in this process is that you start to have an enormous appreciation for paradox, right? For the fact that, that, that where there is expansion, there is going to be contraction. Where there is opening, there's going to be closing. Where there's the formless, there's going to be form. Where there's form, there's going to be formless because, because, there, because this is a universe of, you know, of energies, of of different densities and and subtleties, but they're always morphing into each other. And that's the, I think that's the true experience of sacred play is to start to realize that, you know, what the Buddhists call impermanence and the Hindu tantrikas called shakti is this utterly playful life energy that, you know, is, is taking all these forms, some very dire and and scary and sad and some very exalted and light and beautiful, but always changing, interchanging with each other. And and when we when we learn how to how to surf with those energies, then we can handle really a very, very challenging life. And that's a good thing. I think that metaphor of surfing or dancing really is very appropriate. Yeah. Well Sally very helpful. That can be a beautiful note on which to end actually. Because I'm conscious of your time and how much I've taken up now over the last two days, unless you have something to add and you feel that we've missed. Yeah, that feels okay. good. And it's been really fun. And I look forward to the way that this uh, podcast is evolving. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for being a part of it, Sally. It is, uh, you know, it's an excuse to have really wonderful, interesting conversations with people like yourself. So, yeah, and, and a gift for everybody. So, that's right. So, Thank you and love and uh, have a beautiful day. Thank you, Sally. Before I let you go, would you like the opportunity just to let folks know where they can find you and more about your courses and your offerings? 
Yes, I have a website, sallykempton.com, which has pretty much everything on it, uh, including a lot of articles, um, links to my books. I've written two books, one called Meditation for the Love of It, and one called Awakening Shakti Book is actually an examination of the psycho-spiritual qualities of 10 Hindu deity forms, 10 Hindu goddesses. And I, I do a lot of teleclasses, six-week online, or rather on the phone classes on many, many topics from, you know, I have some courses in working with emotions. I have courses in different tantric texts. I have a lot of courses that you can sign up for and take, do live or download. And I teach in person. So all of that's on my website. Well, thank you so much, Sally. This was so much fun and looking forward to connecting with you in another one of your courses, whether online or in person in the near future. I look forward to Adrian. Big love. Okay, take care.